Uh, did you guys hear the news this last week? I'll read you the headline. Researchers discover hidden continent greater Adria in the Mediterranean. Did any of you see this in the news? They literally discovered a new continent. I'll read you the headline here. The seven wonders of the world may be getting a new addition. Researchers have uncovered a continent the size of Greenland, mostly hiding underwater in the Mediterranean. Dubbed Greater Adria or Adria by its founders at a university in the Netherlands, the missing piece of continental crust seemingly separated from North Africa and lodged itself under southern Europe. While most of the continent is underwater, much of the land's masses, sedimentary pieces were scraped off during its great migration. Those scrapings now make up what we think of as the European mountain belts, including parts of the Alps in Greece and Turkey. Uh, one researcher said, it's quite simply a geological mess. Everything is curved and broken and stacked. The Mediterranean region is geologically among the most complex on Earth, according to researchers, and they said this continent's large area contributed uh, due, its, due to its past discovery. Uh, this former continent now uh, hosts, or at one time hosted, over 30 different countries. That's incredible to think about. It's been there the whole time, and, and they're just sort of rediscovering this continent that uh, used to be somebody's home many, many years ago. And I couldn't help but think of Noah's flood and all the tectonic changes that that likely caused. But nonetheless, uh, it's fascinating to think that they are, are discovering or rediscovering a brand new continent that we didn't know was there. And I think in, in a similar way as Christians, every now and then we need to stop and, and just think about concepts and terms that we use all of the time, but uh, we sort of need to rediscover them uh, every now and then. We use terms like forgiveness, justification, um, redemption, things like that, and, and, and we use them in conversation, and every now and then it's like, wait a minute, what are we even talking about when we use these terms? And when I think about discipleship, I think that's, that's one of those terms. Uh, every now and then we need to stop and think, what do we actually mean when we talk about discipleship? What does that actually involve? And, and uh, I won't do this, even though Rick assured me you would all respond. Uh, if I put you on the spot right now and said, give me a 30-second definition of what Christian discipleship is, could you do it? And yet this is fundamental to our task as Christians, right? This is why we're here, is to make disciples in all the nations. So what I want to do in uh, this hour uh, is to rediscover with you biblical discipleship. And I'll, I'll let you in on uh, the method to my attempted madness today. Uh, in this hour, I want to just review biblical discipleship. What is it? What is God's blueprint for the local church? Uh, what does the process look like that we're supposed to be engaged in in our local congregations as we go out into all the world and make disciples? Uh, that's a, a very difficult task. So uh, in the next hour in the worship service, we'll talk about endurance and enduring in that work. And then I hope you'll come back tonight. I heard there's going to be some baptisms, so definitely come for those and hear the testimonies of what God has done in the life of people here in your church uh, but what I want to do is take the model that we look at this morning for discipleship, and I want to bring all of those pieces together in a very practical way that I hope you could go home and, and engage in it right away. Uh, so we'll talk tonight about the, uh, the topic of anger and how you can deal with anger in your own life and how you can come alongside and help disciple somebody who's struggling with a problem of anger. And I know none of you deal with anger, um, maybe your spouse does or your children do, so you know, make sure to bring them along and uh, they can benefit. And um, Okay, so let's, uh, let's see if we can get this working here. Oh, hey, look at that. Rediscovering biblical discipleship. 
Would you turn in your Bibles with me, please, to Matthew chapter 28? And as Rick said, uh, this will be a, a little more of a, a workshop format, a little less formal. Uh, my habit, my typical habit is uh, to just open God's Word to a text and, and work through it verse by verse, as I know is the habit of your church. So we'll take a little bit of liberty here to do more of a topical exposition. Uh, but I want to try to build a framework for thinking about biblical discipleship. Uh, this is a text that uh, I trust we're all familiar with. The Great Commission, uh, Jesus is uh, about to go back to heaven to be with his Father. And uh, before he does, he commissions the eleven, and by implication, all Christians. Follow, me along, with, follow along with me as I read uh, Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 18. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. If those are quite literally the final words of Jesus, to go into all the world and make disciples, uh, that must mean that it's exceedingly important that we know what he's talking about. What does it mean to make a disciple? What does it mean to do discipleship? What does that process look like? And, and uh, how can we be faithful uh, to do what Jesus is calling us to do? Uh, we get some hints here in this text, and we'll look at those in just a few minutes. But I, I thought maybe I, we could just start with a definition, uh, a working definition of discipleship, and we can kind of work from that uh, in our time here today. So, so here's, a, here's a definition of discipleship. Discipleship is the skill and practice of calling people to trust Christ, then ministering to and training them such that they grow in their relationship with Christ by learning to trust and obey Him in all areas of life. Okay, and we could branch out in any number of ways to expand on that, but I think that encapsulates uh, the main ideas of what we're thinking about here. It's a skill. This is not something that, that you just know how to do. It's something we have to develop as part of our Christian lives. It's a practice. It's not enough to know how to do it. We have to actually engage in it. This is something that we're supposed to be doing constantly in our lives. And on the front end, it's calling people to repentant faith in Jesus. And then as our text tells us here, it turns into an ongoing habitual teaching and training, a ministering to and training people such that they grow in their relationship with Christ by learning to trust and obey Him in all areas. And uh, what's interesting is if you survey the New Testament, you recognize that there's actually four types of discipleship. And, and perhaps we could uh, uh, even make even more with some more nuances. But I want to just do the flyover, if I could, of what the New Testament teaches when we think about discipleship uh, in terms of the forms that it takes and, and the different contexts that we do it. Uh, let's think about those four types of discipleship, and hopefully this will be helpful to kind of form a grid, and then we'll, we'll fill it in as we go. Uh, the, the first type is what we might call preliminary discipleship, and, and we see Jesus talk about this here. We're, we're to go into all the world and make disciples. That, that's calling people to faith in Jesus. Uh, we know from other texts like Romans chapter 10 that uh, people don't hear the gospel, they can't respond to the gospel without a preacher, 
And so we go into our community right here in the Kansas City area or the Dallas-Fort Worth area where I live, or we go to Russia or Ukraine or to Africa. We, we go into all the world and we preach the gospel message and we call men and women to repent and trust in Christ as their Lord and Savior. Uh, we call that preliminary discipleship, or the usual term we use, we just simply call it evangelism. Uh, sometimes in counseling circles, we call that pre-counseling because you can't really disciple a non-disciple, and counseling, as, as Pastor Rick indicated, is just discipleship. It's just a form of discipleship. So the first type of discipleship that we're thinking about here is preliminary. It's evangelistic, and uh, we could go all over the New Testament and see examples of this. I know you're familiar with these. We see Paul and Barnabas in Acts 14 as the early church is being born. They're preaching the gospel to all of the nations. Uh, Paul, when he introduces his letter to the Romans, when he uh, introduces his letter in 1 Corinthians, right out of the gate in that first chapter, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel. I, I love to preach the gospel. And so uh, we see this form, this preliminary form of discipleship is where we start. Uh, now there's a second form of discipleship as we do our flyover here, and that is what we might call exemplary discipleship. And my favorite text uh, to, to see this is actually not in the New Testament, but way back in the Old Testament. If you follow me back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and uh, let's look at this second type of discipleship trying to build a, a framework for understanding discipleship. We're looking at four different types. There's evangelism, preliminary, and secondly, exemplary. We might call this a modeling discipleship. And uh, we're just going to kind of parachute into uh, Deuteronomy here. Uh, you recall as you're turning there that Deuteronomy is uh, the second law, right? Moses is about to go up on the mountain. God's going to let him look over the river, see the promised land, and then he's going to die. He's not going to be allowed to go in, you'll remember, because of his disobedience in the wilderness. Uh, so this is his last shot, right? This is his last sermon, the people that he's ministered to his whole life. And in fact, many of them, their parents have died in the wilderness. So Moses is addressing their children, this new generation of Israelites that's going to go in and possess the promised land. And Deuteronomy is largely his last sermon, his last effort to, to encourage them in the things of the Lord and, and to call them to follow the Lord. And uh, this is also the text that we know of as the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4, um, the, the declaration of faith uh, for the Israelites. And on the heels of the Ten Commandments in verse 5, uh, we look at chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. There's, there's what Jesus called the, the greatest of the commandments there. Now you'll notice if you look down at verse 7, he immediately starts applying this to parenting, right? That, that's a, a great context of discipleship, training your children in the things of the Lord, speaking of the Lord when you, when you sit down, when you rise up. But before he goes there, notice with me verse 6. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. Implication, mom and dad. He says, before you try to teach these things to other people, before you try to instill them in your children, in your home, you need to be a good example of what it means to live out as a follower of Yahweh, to, to follow his principles, to follow his counsel. And we see here the importance of what we might call, we might call exemplary discipleship. It's, it's being a good example of what it means to follow God. And I don't know, uh, some of you that are, that are parents may have discovered this. Um, I learned early on 
that my children are hypocrite detectors. Have you noticed this? Grandchildren are the same way. They, they, they can, it's like they have a radar system that locks out. Do, 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 and it locks out on hypocrisy and says, well, Dad, why should I do that when you're not doing it? And so I think that there's, there's real wisdom here in what Moses is telling the Israelites, that, that the Word of God, the things of God, must be lived out in our hearts first. I mean, the reality is, if we're going to go into all the world and make disciples, and, and we're going to say, hey, we have the best news in the world, you can be reconciled to the God that made you. There's forgiveness, there's transformation, there's hope. Uh, when we think about life problems or, or family problems or emotional problems or counseling problems, there's hope to, to grow and change in those situations. But the reality is no one's going to take us seriously if they don't see something of those things playing out in our own heart and life, are they? Paul says the same thing uh, to uh, the Philippians. In Philippians chapter 4, that, that text that talks about worry and anxiety and contentment, uh, he says to the Philippians, the things you have seen uh, in me, practice these things. And he tells uh, his young pastor friend, Timothy, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, to pay close attention to yourself as well as to your teaching. Watch over your life as well as your doctrine, Timothy, because the reality is, whether you're a pastor, whether you're a dad, whether you're a neighbor, whether you're a coworker, we gain credibility in our message when we see, when people see that we are living out what we believe in our life. So preliminary discipleship, that's evangelism. Exemplary discipleship, we call that modeling or, or just being a, a faithful follower. Uh, let, me, let me talk to you now about a third type of discipleship. And again, we're just kind of doing a flyover of the, of the Bible to try to get an idea of what this looks like in different contexts. We could call this one formative discipleship. Formative discipleship. And, and probably you and I in a church context, we would typically think of this as what we call ministry. We're just, we're doing ministry and children's ministry, we're discipling children, we're helping them to come to the things of the Lord and adult ministry and small group ministry from the pulpit. Uh, wherever we go, we're doing ministry. And uh, we saw this, so you don't need to turn back there because you're familiar with it, but we saw this in that great commission text, right? Matthew 28, 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Uh, or Paul describes this in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, that uh, we proclaim Christ, right? How do we do that? We admonish every man and we teach every man with all wisdom. This is formative discipleship, where we're going and we're instructing people, we're teaching them from the Word, we're, we're getting into the milieu of life and helping them to apply the Word of God, all with this vision that we saw in the Great Commission that people would trust and obey Jesus in all areas, it's formative discipleship. Uh, we'll come back to this verse in a moment. It's in your notes there in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. The, the main mechanism that we see the New Testament uh, showing us in terms of how this formative discipleship happens is when we speak the truth in love to one another. Okay, so remember that because we're going to circle back and look at Ephesians more a little bit here in a moment. And then the final type of discipleship, there's evangelism, preliminary discipleship, modeling, that's exemplary, there's ministry, that's formative discipleship. And, and the final one, and, and maybe you, you, you will not, you don't think of this as discipleship, but it actually is. It actually is. It's corrective discipleship. Typically, we call that church discipline. But if you study Matthew 18 and, and 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and the other places in the Bible that describe church discipline, we understand that that, that is actually a, a church-wide rescue operation of discipleship. 
You're going to a brother or sister who is living in sin. You're calling them out of that in repentance. If they don't respond, then you bring another brother or sister along to confirm the validity of what's going on, to, to encourage them that this is really serious and you need to repent. You need to turn away from that wickedness. Uh, and then, of course, the situation at that point might be so urgent that if they don't respond, what do you do? You, you, you tell the whole church. It, it's a church-wide rescue operation of corrective discipleship to go get this brother or sister out of the, the spiritual ditch that they're in and, and get them back on the, nor, the normal road of discipleship. So it's, it's corrective discipleship. It, it's restorative discipleship, we might say. And uh, you're familiar with how all that works, okay? So I, I hope that's helpful. I know that that's very, very quick, but that's an overview of the four main types of discipleship. And really, to be a faithful church, we need to be thinking about applying each of those types of discipleship in our lives, okay? Well, in addition to that, let, let's move on here, and uh, we're going to get a text. Just, just hang on. This is all introduction, right? It's all introduction. Um, in addition to four types of discipleship, the Bible also reveals what we might call three levels of discipleship, and um, uh, I, I love to draw things. In fact, if there was a whiteboard here, I have R.C. Sproul moments where you get up and you draw things. Of course, uh, you probably couldn't see that in a room this size, so I put a chart, a little picture in your notes there, and I hope that this is helpful. This is how I think about discipleship happening in the local church, and, and you're, as we're going to see, this is very important because if you think about evangelism, if you think about modeling, if you think about formative discipleship, if you think about corrective discipleship, maybe you've noticed this already, that is a church-wide operation. Everyone is involved in discipleship at some level. Everybody has to be involved. And we'll see in Ephesians that the whole body only grows and the gospel is only effectively proclaimed when every believer in a local church is doing his or her part to make that happen. And uh, I get, as a, as a biblical counselor trainer, uh, I regularly get phone calls from pastors and the call goes something like this, Pastor Keith, um, we're dying here. We've got marriage issues. We've got addiction issues. We've got people struggling in their families. We've got all these problems, and the elders and I can't keep up. And I tell them, I have good news for you, brother. It's not your job to do all the discipling in the church. It's the whole church's responsibility. Because there are levels of discipleship. The elder pastors have a very important role, but their role is not to do all the counseling, not to do all the discipling. Their role, as we'll see here, is to equip the saints and to provide a shepherding jurisdiction over the congregation, and it's the whole body that does the operation of discipleship. So, so let me show you what I mean by this, and uh, I've got a diagram here to show you. And let me just put it up here and kind of walk you through it, Okay. At the top of the diagram, at the top of our chart here, what we have the top level of discipleship. This is the role of the elders and pastors. And uh, we see this, uh, we'll anchor these in a couple of texts here in just a moment, but let me just explain it to you and then, and then I'll demonstrate it from the scriptures here. That top level is the elders and pastors. 1 Peter chapter 5 says that the elders are to shepherd the flock of God among them, right? You're familiar with that. Uh, the book of Hebrews actually says in chapter 13 that we ought to obey our leaders and submit to them. Why? What do they do? This is the part where you participate, like Rick said, okay? What, what do the elders actually uh, uh, do in terms of what is their responsibility before the Lord? 
It says that they keep watch over your souls. Why? As those who will give an account to God. What a sobering reality for those of us that are elder pastors. That one day, as we stand before the Lord, not not in the the great white throne judgment, but in the the Bema seat, the, the judgment for believers, that every pastor will give an account for every member of his congregation in terms of how he cared for their souls. What a huge responsibility. And yet that is God's design for the local church, that the elders would have that that top-level shepherding jurisdiction. But we also recognize that the elders in no way could do all of the shepherding, all of the discipling. That's not God's design. God's design is to build in levels below the elder pastors for how this works. The second level is what I'm going to call mature and trained believers. Mature and trained believers. These are people in the faith that are more mature in Christ. They're probably chronologically older. They've been, they've been Christians longer. They're skilled in the church. They're, they're uh, experienced in ministry. And we see in a text like Titus chapter 2, we'll turn there in just a minute, that they are called to train, to come alongside and train the younger ones. And, and as I understand ecclesiology and, and how the, the church sort of works in terms of discipleship, I find that this is the most common level that is neglected in the local church. Um, small groups might be going on really well, and, and, and you know, people are engaged in Awana and children's ministry and, and adult ministry. You know, people are doing ministry. But what isn't happening is we don't have mature, a, a team of mature, seasoned believers that are particularly equipped and particularly experienced to handle the more challenging discipleship cases in the church. And so filling out this second level really becomes essential to a church's health and essential to developing a culture of discipleship in our local congregations. And then the final one is the all-believer level. This is the every-member level. Uh, Paul tells the Romans that every believer is competent to counsel. Every believer is uh, in Christ has an ability to come alongside and shepherd others. Now, now, notice a few things about this. If you look at the top of this little chart, as you move to the, the top end, it looks more like counseling, what we would think of as a counseling conversation where there, there's an intentionality, right? We're sitting down, we have an agenda, someone wants to talk to us about a particular problem, and uh, there might be an appointment made, and there might be uh, homework assignments that promote sanctification that might be given. And so it looks really formal at the top end. As we move to the bottom of the levels of discipleship, we recognize that, that it's, it's less formal. It, it's, it's, it looks more like fellowship. It looks more like Starbucks counseling, as we call it, right? You're just hanging out, having a purposeful conversation with a brother or sister in Christ. And at the same time, if we look on the other side, uh, at the top of this discipleship pyramid, inverted pyramid, that at that top level of more formal discipleship, uh, it typically is intensive and, and is usually used for more particular needs. It, it often is more problem-oriented, whereas as you move down to the all-believer level, it's less intensive, it's more general in nature, and it tends to be less problem-oriented, okay? D- does that make sense? You see how that works? And uh, I may be the one to to break this news to you, I don't think, because you guys are are well taught from what I hear, but all of us are disciplers. All of us are counselors, and and you may not be comfortable with that, but in the biblical sense, that's just discipling, right? We're all disciplers, we're all counselors, we're all given uh, commands by God to engage in discipleship at some level. 
okay? So if we see this fleshed out, not that you understand the picture, we, we see if we look at the text now in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, as, as Peter is writing to the elders, uh, he calls them to this shepherding jurisdiction, we, we might call it, this, this formal level of counseling. The, the, the buck stops, so to speak, in the church at the elders in terms of shepherding care. And uh, we know these verses in uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Uh, Peter writes these words. He says, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor as yet lording it over those allotted to your charge but proving to be examples to the flock. Notice there's that, there's that exemplary discipleship mentioned here also. And, and this, is, this is really sobering. And when the chief shepherd appears. See, pastors recognize that they are really under shepherds, right? They, they function under the jurisdiction of the great shepherd, Jesus himself. And, and they are delegated care on behalf of Jesus to a local assembly to shepherd them, to, to care for them, to exercise oversight. Uh, we, we can branch out uh, from this, as, as we mentioned, Colossians 1, admonish them, teach them with all wisdom so that they can present every man complete in Christ. Or Hebrews 13, 17, we, we do this shepherding work as those who will give an account to God. But, the, but they have a, a formal jurisdiction, a formal responsibility before God to do this. And if we just back up a few pages to Titus chapter 2, we see that second level that I mentioned a moment ago, uh, the, the, the older godly believer, the more mature believer level, if we want to call it that. Uh, Paul's writing to Titus, and, and this is in the context of a local church. He, he's, he's instructing him, th this, is, uh, this is how you set up church. And chapter 1, of course, talks about setting up elders and the qualification for elders uh, in the local church. And then he turns the corner from that top level of discipleship to the second level, and he says in chapter 2, verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the Word of God will not be dishonored. What is that describing, by the way? What, what, what is that little snapshot actually describing? That's discipleship. It's discipleship, isn't it? It's, it's helping, and notice just some of the examples here, helping young wives and moms to love their husbands. You know anybody that's struggling with that? <laughs> struggling to relate to their spouse, struggling to communicate, struggling to make decisions together, struggling to do parenting? Well, well here's the answer. An older, godly believer, not a professional counselor, not, not even an ACBC certified counselor, and, and I work for them. <laughs> it's an older, more mature brother or sister coming alongside a younger, less mature brother or sister and saying, can we talk about this? Can we talk about how God has worked in our marriage? Can, can I explain what my husband and I have learned before the Lord when we're, when we're talking about parenting, when we're talking about communication? Notice it's issues of, of, of uh, morality too, sensibility, so that, that word means self-control, pure, issues of purity, being a worker at home, the, the role of a wife in the home, being kind, 
etc. You get the idea. These are counseling issues. These are life discipleship issues. And notice, they're not handled by the pastor elders. They're not handled by trained professionals. They're handled by believers in the local church who are a couple steps further down the road in discipleship. And that is such a need for developing a church where discipleship is going on. Uh, the final level, we call it the every member, every member level, is all believers discipling and counseling one another on some level. I mentioned Romans 15, 14, where Paul tells the Roman Christians that they are literally competent to counsel. Um, usually in the New American Standard, the, the, the main word for counseling gets translated as admonish or warn, uh, but the word means to counsel. And um, did I put this in your notes? The, the, um, where is it? Oh, I'm going forward, Backward. There we go. Do you have that in your notes? Okay. Uh, again, th- this is, this is a, a flyover uh, diagram of the uh, one another commands. Are you guys familiar with these? They're all the commands in the New Testament that end with one another. That's why they're called the one another commands. And the top little box there, these are more uh, attitude commands, like spur one another on to love and good deeds, be devoted to one another, give preference to one another, accept one another. And then if you look on the sort of the left-hand side, uh, it branches down into actions, contribute to one another's needs, love one another, serve one another through love, be kind to one another. And then the branch on the right-hand side, those are more uh, verbal uh, helps that are called. Admonish one another, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, teach one another. And, and you'll notice that several of these intersect with what we typically think of as discipleship counseling. For example, up in that middle box on the top, build one another up. I mean, isn't that what we're doing? When someone pulls you aside after the morning service and they say, I've just been so discouraged lately. Well, what's going on? We got a phone call this week. And uh, you remember we sent our son or daughter off to college? Yeah, remember that? And uh, they called this week to say that um, they're not going to church anymore. They're not, in fact, they're questioning. They're questioning Christianity altogether. So you're talking to this friend. They've just found out their adult child is abandoned Christianity, and they're discouraged, and they're despairing. And, and what do you do? Well, go call up Pastor Rick, right? Go, go talk to Pastor Rick. He's a good, no, no, no. You see here, this is every member coming alongside to do what? To build them up, or to encourage them, or to help them, or to restore them, to, to, to encourage them in the things of the Lord, and to give them tools and instruction and counsel. Well, how do I relate to that adult child that's abandoned Christianity? How do I have a relationship with them? What do I say? What are some strategies? Um, how can I, I love them? How can I be a good example and, and still express concern to them about their choices? I mean, that, that happens in the milieu of the normal local church. Th- these are conversations that we ought to be having between services as we're getting a cup of coffee. And, and that's the, the biblical vision of discipleship, the, the every member level as we live out the one another's. So speaking of biblical counseling, since uh, that's a lot of what I do, and I appreciate what what Pastor Rick said, I I really think that uh, counseling has been so psychologized in our culture and it's been so professionalized that that we as biblical Christians think about it and we go, why would we we want to be involved in that? But the reality is that, that a secular world has really hijacked something that belongs in the local church. 
Counseling and discipleship is really a function of the local church, and God calls us to do that. So, so for our purposes, when I say counseling, I just want you to know what I mean, okay? Biblical counseling is intensive discipleship for particular needs. That's my definition. It's particular discipleship or intensive discipleship for particular needs, meaning there's some particular issue that's drawn us into conversation, and rather than being a general season of discipleship where we're talking about the Christian life and how to live those things out and how doctrine applies to life in a, in a general way, we're going to do that in a season of intentional, intensive ministry. But that's all biblical counseling is. It's, it's intensive discipleship for particular needs. And uh, biblical counseling in that view, we understand, is not an autonomous ministry, uh, but it belongs in the local church as one mode of discipleship. Uh, I, I mentioned to Pastor Rick this morning that uh, when I get phone calls about this, pastors think that the way to handle the, the counseling problems in their church, the life problems in their church, is they're going to build a counseling center and they're going to staff it with professionals. But that's bad ecclesiology, isn't it? That, that's not the biblical view. The biblical view is, no, 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 pastors, teachers, equip your people to do the work of discipleship, and that becomes the front line of care in the local church. It's not an activity reserved for experts, and we've seen these verses before, but instead, uh, these are, it is the calling of all Christians to disciple and counsel at some level. All right, so with that in mind, uh, that was all introduction. Turn your Bible with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Let's talk about a blueprint of a disciple-making church, and, and obviously of necessity, uh, we're contenting ourselves with, uh, with just a summary of these verses. Uh, we, could, we could spend months uh, pulling out the intricacies of these verses because they're so critical to the life and, and health of the local church. But, but let me just, uh, in our time that remains... Um, what I'd like you to see with me are four commitments for a disciple-making church, okay? Four commitments for a disciple-making church. Uh, first, a, 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 a grammatical footnote here. The text that we're going to look at is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. You ready for this? It's all one sentence. And I can hear my third-grade English teacher saying, run on sentence, right? And, and what is bad in English is actually pretty normal in Greek, but that tells us that this is one thought, that this is one sentence from the pen of the Apostle Paul as the Spirit works to have him write an inspired message. And Ephesians is such a wonderful book, we're not going to be able to do justice even to this section, but those first couple of chapters, Paul unfolds the gospel, right? He, he reminds us and, and anchors us in the gospel where God has called us out of darkness, he's predestined us, he's called us by grace through faith in Christ uh, to know him and to follow him. And, and we see those uh, wonderful doctrines mentioned in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And in chapter 3, he's reminding us of some of the implications of the gospel and, and his role, his ministry in that. And then the hinge of the book, as you know, the, the hinge between the, the gospel truths, the positional truths of who we are in Christ and the practical implications of how we live that out in our Christian life, the hinge of the book is chapter 4, verse 1. So look with me at that. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Your position in Christ, the gospel, those, those principles and doctrines that we've talked about in the first three chapters, now he calls believers to walk those out, to live those out in light of 
uh, what's going on in their lives at all levels. And, and it's interesting, as, as you know how Ephesians uh, is constructed, he's going to start off talking about the blueprint in the local church, then he moves out to talk about it in our personal lives, then he gets really, really specific, and he talks about how we live out the gospel in our families, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our workplace, and on and on through the end of the book. And so we'll just look at one little section that encapsulates uh, a blueprint uh, of what a church who wants to be a disciple-making church should look like. Uh, look with me down at verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building of, of itself in love. Can you do that in one breath? <laughs> it's one thought. It's one thought. So let, let's take it apart, and I want you to see the four commitments that, God, that uh, God is really showing us through Paul that churches need to make if they're going to be a disciple-making church. Uh, the first one is a commitment to biblical roles. We, we see this here in the first few verses. We see in verse 11 the role of, believer, uh, role of leader. Excuse me. And, and notice it doesn't say in chapter 4, verse 11... He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers, and they do all the work in the church. doesn't say that, does it? What is the main role of the pastor elders in the local church? And we'll focus just on the, that last uh, uh, term there, pastor teachers. We understand that the prophets and apostles were a, a temporary office that the, the church was founded upon, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, and then, of course, those offices ceased with the close of the canon and the start of the church. But those pastor elders, their role is to equip believers. Uh, look with me back at verse 11, or verse 12. Th what they do is they equip the saints, and the saints do the work of service. So the role of the leaders is not to do all the counseling, do all the discipling, do all the ministry. Their role is mainly to equip Believers and believers do the work of ministry. Now, now, don't get caught up on the word saint there. If you grew up in a, a Catholic church or a liturgical church like I did, you know, I think of saint as like super Christian, right? But that's not biblically what it means. Saints just means holy ones. It's, it's all believers. It's another word for Christians. So the leaders equip believers, and the role of believers is to do the work of ministry. Uh, the NASB translates it for the work of service, but that word service just means ministry. We, we engage in the work of ministry. Uh, how is that ministry to be done? Uh, I alluded to this a moment ago, and, and for sake of time, let me just quote it to you. Um, but Colossians 1:28, Paul says this, and he encapsulates ministry really in two verses. He says, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we might present every man complete in Christ. I think that's one of Pastor Rick's life verses or something like that, right? It, it's so helpful because in two verses, Paul gives us what we need to know in terms of 
ministry. What, what are we doing? Him we proclaim. Paul rearranges the word order there to put Jesus, him, as the main message. We, we're proclaiming Jesus. We're proclaiming the person and work of Christ. And that's what ministry is. This is what believers are doing. When Paul says the work of service, the work of ministry, we're proclaiming Christ. You say, well, how do we do that? Colossians 1.28 says, by admonishing every man and teaching every man. And if you like to mark uh, words in your Bible, uh, just underline that word admonish. That's the, the main biblical word for counsel. Uh, some of you that have been to seminary and, and had some training, uh, you know you know the reference to BDAG, don't you? Uh, for the rest of us, that, that's the most reliable Greek dictionary available. It's what we use to study when we're, we're studying Scripture. And that most reliable Greek dictionary translates this word to counsel, to counsel, because that's what it means. We're coming alongside, we're warning, we're encouraging, we're calling people away from their sin to trust in Christ and to apply His Word. So the work of ministry is done as we proclaim Christ and by wisely counseling and teaching. And notice also the repetition. Did you catch it? Admonish every man, teach every man with all wisdom so that we might present every man complete in Christ. He repeats it three times. Now, why would he do that? Why would he repeat the fact that we're supposed to admonish and teach with wisdom, proclaim Christ to every man, every man, every man? Why? Because we don't stop. We are not done with ministry until everybody has heard and everybody is growing into the image of Christ. That, that's the goal. Until they are mature, there it is, until they are mature in Christ. He says complete in Christ. That's teleon. It means mature or complete. So, so that's that's the flyover of what ministry looks like. How is, is ministry done? We proclaim Christ, we counsel, we teach all people until they are mature in Christ. And we are not done until everybody looks like Jesus. Okay? Let's look at a second commitment. Second commitment for uh, a disciple-making church back in Ephesians is a commitment to biblical goals. Look at verse 13 with me. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a, uh, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. Notice the two goals that Paul gives us here in the text. Leaders equip believers. Believers do the work of ministry. And, and what are we aiming at? What, what are we trying to do? The two goals he gives us here in discipleship are unity and maturity. Unity and maturity. We see the first one there in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of faith. And notice, those of us that are pastors, we think about unity a lot, right? We think about guarding unity, protecting unity, uh, looking out for unity. It is not hard to develop unity but it is hard to develop the right kind of unity. This is not unity around a style of music. This is not unity around a certain um, uh, preference or style of ministry. This is unity around faith in Jesus. This is unity by a common commitment to Jesus and doctrine and what he calls us to do. So unity is the first goal. The second goal is maturity. It's maturity that our text tells us here is exemplified by Christ-likeness. To a mature man, to the measure of the stature that belongs 
to the fullness of Christ. See, maturity is measured by the yardstick, which is Jesus himself, right? That's what we're aiming for. We're trying to disciple and encourage and teach and train and admonish so that all of us are growing in unity, but also growing in maturity, that we would look more like Christ. See, according to Paul here, the measure of health of a church is not the size of the offering. It's not the the number of people coming to worship. It's not the number of programs. It's not the opinion of the community. It is Christ-likeness. And the more we look like Christ and are unified around a common commitment to Him, the more healthy, the Bible says, is our church. So we have to have a commitment to biblical roles. Leaders equip believers. Believers do the work of ministry. We have to have a commitment to biblical goals, uh, unity and maturity. Thirdly, a commitment to a biblical plan. And we read these verses. He calls us in verse 14 to reject spiritual childishness. Reject spiritual childishness. Look what he says. We are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Uh, Kids are kids, right? Uh, When you have kids in your home, you're pulling Cheerios off of diapers, out of diapers. Uh, You're cleaning up milk spills. You're finding Legos behind the couch. Uh, I love love children, don't you? Those of you that have children and grandchildren. and, And kids act in childish ways, don't they? That's what they are. They're kids. But you know, it's a problem when adults act like children, right? Adults are not supposed to act like children. They're supposed to grow up. And that's what Paul is using here as analogy. He says, as Christians that are growing into the image of Christ, we need to turn away from spiritual childishness, from spiritual immaturity. And he focuses here on one aspect of children that is actually really dangerous, and it applies to immature Christians, and that is they are more prone to deception. They are easily deceived. Immature believers are easily deceived, and deception leads, as it says here, to spiritual immaturity. They're tossed here and there by waves. They're carried about by every wind of doctrine, every new Christian book that comes out that's a bestseller. They're just into all that, even though it might be doctrinally problematic. And so he says you have to reject spiritual childishness, and instead we pursue spiritual adulthood. We are to grow up, Paul says, into all aspects, into him who is the head, even Christ. We, we grow up to maturity. Well, how do we do that? What, what's the mechanism that we use to grow in maturity, to turn away from spiritual childishness? Well, he says it here. We speak the truth in love. We speak the truth in love. And you need to get this. The, the main mode of discipleship is speaking the truth in love to another brother or sister based on their need. That's it. It's speaking the truth in love. It's coming alongside, giving them the truth of God's word, doing it in a loving way with the goal that they would mature in Christ as a solution to their struggle. So that, that, that's the point. Now, now we're going to come back tonight, and I'm going to flesh that out in a very particular way. So you say, well, well, how does that work? Well, the whole rest of the book of Ephesians actually models how you do that, right? You put off the old man, you put on the new. Uh, you grow into the image of Christ. You do that in your marriage. You do that in your parenting. Uh, so keep reading Ephesians, and Paul will tell us exactly how this applies. But we'll come back tonight and look at it in more detail. And a final commitment, um, a final commitment uh, to a a church that is growing in discipleship is a commitment to the biblical vision. I don't know 
of any other sentence in the New Testament that encapsulates a biblical view of what discipleship ought to look like than this one verse. And remember, in Greek, it's actually part of a verse, but for English, it's a verse, okay? Look at this, verse 16. Um, From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself of love. Let me tell you what what Paul is doing in this verse. He's opening up the hood, exposing the engine of discipleship. He's saying, this is what ought to be under the hood of your church. This is how all the parts work together. This is how the engine of discipleship functions. And notice, just look at at the components of of the discipleship engine here. He says, from whom the whole body. The the whom there is what? By context. We look back at the next verse. The whom is the head, Christ. From Christ, the whole body, that's all believers, are fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. So Christ is the head, and from him, believers come together, and they use their gifts, they use their talents, they engage in their role, whatever discipleship looks like. You might be discipling short people on Sunday morning. You might be discipling big people on Sunday morning. Whatever it looks like, everyone is using their gifts, doing their part. And when they are fitted and held together by what every joint supplies and everyone is is doing their part, look at what Paul says happens. It causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Underneath Christ, the church is self-sustaining as the members minister to one another, disciple one another, and cause the growth and unity of the whole body. Okay? That's the engine of discipleship in one verse. Now, now, I hope I provoked your interest, and we're going to talk tonight about what that looks like in a very practical way. So, so let, let, me, let me leave you with this. Let me leave you with this. Let's say this afternoon you're watching the Chiefs. Watching watch a football game, right? Someone knocks on your door, and it's your neighbor. And your neighbor says, um, and you look at him, you're like, are you okay? Not really. Do you want to come in? Yeah, come on in and sit down. And your, your neighbor sits down on the couch, and, and he, he begins to tear up, and he says, my wife Mary and I had one of our fights again. She says, my anger is, is reached a threshold, and she's done. Will you and your wife come talk to, talk to her? Will you come talk to me and my wife, help us to work this out? Can I just ask you a question? What would your knee-jerk response be to that? Would you say, yes, that's my role, right, to disciple, to go help my brother? Or would you say, um, here's Pastor Rick's number. Give him a call. He can meet with you on Tuesday afternoon, right? The, the vision here is that the, the impulse of your heart would be, that's my job, that's my role, to go to my neighbor and sit down with them to open the Word of God and minister to them in the struggle of their marriage. And we'll talk more about how we do that later tonight. Let me pray.